as we get into it, I'm reminded of a story that I heard about a kid who lost his retainer. How many of you used to have braces? Let's show hands, right? And retainers, they, don't you, didn't you hate the retainer? I couldn't stand it. And this kid, you know, his mom puts the fear of God into him. Do not lose this retainer. And so what does he do? He loses his retainer. Anybody lose a retainer? Yeah, yeah, that's fun, right, isn't it? So this kid loses his retainer, and he's desperate because mom has put the fear of God into him. And so he's searching everywhere. He's searching high. He's searching low. He cannot find it. He comes in in tears. He says, Mom, I've lost the retainer, and I looked everywhere for it. And she says, well, do you know approximately where you lost it? You know, and, and he says, well, I think that I was in this area out, you know, outside when I lost it. And um, she says, you think? And he's like, I, Mom, yeah, I think so. She goes out there, and, uh, and this is a guy, right, who's lost this, right? How many of you guys, you ask your wife, she's like, hey, go to the fridge and get me this. And you go, and you're like, it's not here. And she walks past you, and she takes it it's right out in front of you and hands it to you. Mom goes out 10 minutes, comes back. She's got the retainer in her hands. And this kid, he says, Mom, I swear I looked everywhere. Well, how could you find it and I couldn't? She goes, son, because you were looking for a retainer, I was looking for a thousand bucks, right? You're looking for a piece of plastic, I'm looking for a thousand bucks. And here in our text today, we're going to see the great multitudes, and they're coming to Jesus, and metaphorically speaking, these guys are looking for plastic. They're looking for plastic. And we left off with Jesus in Bethany. He performed this fantastic miracle. Uh, In John chapter 10, he says he's God. And then in chapter 11, he proves he's God by raising Lazarus from the dead. And the question then becomes for us, how do we respond to Jesus who is God? How do we respond? Understand, in all things, God is the initiator and man is the responder. And wherever you look in the scriptures, whether it's Adam, whether it's Moses, David, whether it's the disciples, you will discover that God initiated the relationship. He appears, he reveals himself, and then he invites a response. And we left off here in John's gospel several weeks ago looking at several distinct groups modeling several different types of responses to Jesus. Some of them received him and worshipped him. Uh, Some of them rejected and reviled him. And some, quite frankly, just came for the show. And it's the same way today. Even right now, as I'm preaching to you, a full room and, and those of you joining online, there are those of you that are in varying groups. There are some of you who have come to receive and to worship Jesus. You, some of you have rejected Jesus. Some of you reviled Jesus. And some of you really just come for the show. And, and this is, this is the, the, the truth of not only, you know, when we see, when we read the Bible, these are people just like us. These are people just trying to figure it all out, just like us. And, and so sometimes, you know, even as I'm preaching the gospel, there are people in, in all of those different categories. But listen, you, what you need to understand is that everybody worships something or someone. Everybody worships something or someone. It could be Jesus, the true and living God that you worship. 
It could be your job. It could be a person. It could be a position. It could be a possession. It could be some sort of pleasure. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to this. You either worship the true and living God or you are worshiping a false God. There's no in-between. And as well, when we talk about worship, and this gets to the heart of our text today, when we talk about worship, not only who you worship is a big deal, uh, that's the understatement of the week right there, who you worship is a big deal, not only is that true, but it's also important to define why you worship, why you worship. In other words, your motive in whatever it is you worship matters. Why? Because it is actually possible to worship the right God with the wrong motive. Case in point, the great multitudes in our text today. We left off in verse 12. It tells us there the next day, John chapter 12, verse 12, a great multitude that had come to the feast... When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Here what's happening, Jesus has gone viral at this point. And this is an event that we know today as Palm Sunday. It occurred 1989 years ago. And this great multitude, they run out to praise Jesus, to meet Jesus. They're heralding him with palm branches. And the reason that they're all in Jerusalem in the first place is that they had come, the text tells us, for the feast. The feast was the celebration of Passover. It was an event that perpetuated the freedom of Israel when they had been in bondage to Egypt. What had happened there is that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God, through Moses, said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh was wicked and hard-hearted and even though God sent many plagues to, to you know, put the exclamation point, the highlighting on the fact that, hey, I'm God, I'm not messing around, you need to let my people go, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. And so the last plague that God sent was the the angel of death would come and strike uh, the firstborn uh, of of every household. And, And so what God told Moses to do, he said, hey, go tell the Israelites that they are to sacrifice an unblemished lamb. And they are then to affix that blood to the doorpost of their house. And when the angel of death comes, if that blood is affixed to the doorpost of the house then the angel of death will pass over that house and the firstborn of, of every household who, who has done this, um, they, they will be spared. And so this is an incredible picture and, and it's, 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 a, it's an example of how God sets us free, mankind free, not just the Jews who were enslaved in Egypt, that, that enslaved, being enslaved in Egypt is a, it's a type, it's a picture of our being enslaved to sin. The Bible says we are all sinners by nature and by choice. And, and all have sinned, the Bible says, and, and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. 
And this was an, all an event looking forward to the work that God would do through Jesus to, to save mankind from our sins. And when God gave this command in, in Exodus chapter 12, he also told them this. He said, this is a day that you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance. And so every year, the Israelites would gather together in Jerusalem, and they would sacrifice an unblemished lamb. How many of you were here with us yesterday for the Seder dinner? Many of you. And so we, we got to experience and to see all that is entailed in this. And, and historically for the Jews, what this, this Passover celebration commemorated, it looked back. It looked back to what God did to set them free from, from bondage in Egypt. But prophetically for Christians, we understand that Passover looks ahead. Passover looks ahead to the work that Jesus was about to do. At this point in our text, he, he's days away from going to the cross to, to take the sins of the world upon himself. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so prophetically for Christians, Passover looks ahead to this work that Jesus was going to do to set us free from Satan and sin and death. Pharaoh is this metaphoric picture of Satan holding us captive. And, and so this is what Jesus came to do. And I want you to stop and think about this just in our text here. Because they have been doing this now for hundreds of years. All this event and throughout it perpetually they're looking back but this is a type and a sign to the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. And here in our text, the Lamb of God is coming. He's coming into the town. See, at this point in time, what was happening is everybody's coming into Jerusalem and they are all bringing with them the lambs that they had selected. And this is so incredibly important because the multitudes, they have, they have no idea. They are clueless. They, 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 don't, they can't call a friend. They can't pull the audience. They can't buy a vowel. They, they don't know what's going on here. Why? Because the focus of, on, of these, these Israelites, it's not on a Savior who can set them free from sin. It's on a Savior who can free them from government oppression. See, understand what's going on here is that <clears throat> their focus is not on a heavenly kingdom. Their focus is on their earthly kingdom. And their circumstance. And because their focus is off, they misinterpret the prophetic implications entirely. The words that they shout in verse 13 were actually prophesied in the psalm that we read to start our service today, Psalm 118. It, it tells us there in Psalm 118, uh, verse 24, This is the day the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And maybe you've, you've said that, you know, you, you wake up one morning and you say, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And that's great and that's all well and good. But, but man, that's not the day that the psalmist was talking about. Why was the coming of the Messiah uh, such cause for rejoicing? The correct answer is because the world needs a savior to save us from our sin, Right? All of sin falls short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. 
And what Romans 5, 6, and 6 through 8 tells us is, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone, someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Everything that happened in Jesus was a picture of the plight of mankind. We are enslaved. We are in bondage to sin and to death. We are helpless to escape the ruler of this world, Satan, and what we need is to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. We need to be set free. And Jesus is the lamb that was slain for our sin, and it's by his blood that we escape death. Paul said this to the Ephesians. He said, God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. That's the day that the psalmist was celebrating, looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah when he said, this is the day that the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. So they're saying, they're proclaiming the right words but with the wrong meaning. Right? Because that's not the reason they're celebrating here. That's not the reason they're welcoming Jesus in here. What are they celebrating? Well, understand, back in our story, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was overwhelming <clears throat> proof that he was God. And the result was that many believed in Jesus and they all flocked to Jesus, but their expectation of what Jesus came to do was completely off. See, Jesus came to do that work of redemption. He came with a focus on the eternal kingdom of God and making you and me right with him. But their focus was on their earthly kingdom, right? And how do we know that? How can I say that so confidently? Well, there's three clues that the crowd gives us in our text. First of all, notice they come shouting Hosanna. We sang Hosanna. Right And faith explained to you that word Hosanna. When we say Hosanna in the highest, what does it mean? It means save now. That's what the word Hosanna means. Save now. And that too, by the way, comes from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. Uh, the psalmist says this in verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, when the psalmist cries, save now, send prosperity, he's declaring by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's intended, uh, intended purposes for Jesus' first coming. It's to save you and me from sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and Paul says, who writes this, I'm the worst of them all. And, and I think we would give him a run for his money. We would say, let's do a laundry list of what you've done and what I've done, because I, I think I might have title to I'm the worst of them all. And he says, look, it's a trustworthy saying. Everybody should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You need to understand that. He did not come 
to smash you or to beat you down. God is not like, you know, a kid with a magnifying glass burning an ant and, you, and he's the one holding the magnifying glass and you're the ant. That's not how he relates to mankind. He came to save us. And Paul says this is a trustworthy saying. Why is it trustworthy? Because Jesus himself said that. He said, the son of man, Luke 19.10, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And what was lost? The correct answer is you and me. We're lost. Romans 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. And what that means is that mankind is completely lost and separated from God. Isaiah the prophet, he said, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he's turned away and he will not listen anymore. Isaiah goes on in verse 12. He says, for our sins are piled up before God and they testify against us. Yes, we know what sinners we are, and certainly we do. And by the way, Satan has been called the accuser of the brethren, and what he does is he heaps on. He tempts, on this side of the fence, he tempts you to sin, and then on that side of the fence, he piles on, and he's like, oh, you, you can't go to God now. Look at, just look at all this stuff. You're, you're a loser. You're a blow-it. Look at all of this stuff. And so Isaiah says, yeah, we know what, what sinners we are. We know that we've rebelled and have denied the Lord. We've turned our backs on our God. We know how unfair and impressive that we have been carefully planning our deceitful lies. Listen to this, and you tell me if the Bible doesn't speak to today. Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and I would add on the internet and social media, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed, and so he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. This is why Jesus came. He came to save the lost. He came to save you and me. But listen, if you ask this crowd, this great multitude that are welcoming him and praising him, oh, great, Hosanna, blessed is he who's come in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, right? If you ask them what was lost, they wouldn't say that they were lost. That's not even on their radar. They're not going to say we're lost, No, they tell you the problem was that their national freedom was lost. That's the problem that they would tell you. We've lost our national freedom. See, in their mind, the problem isn't their need to be free from sin. The problem, they would tell you, is their need to be free from Rome. You see, at this time, the Jews were under occupation and rule of Rome. It had been 95 years that they had been under Rome's occupation and rule. In 63 BC, Roman legions under Pompey conquered Jerusalem and they deposed the king. And so the Jews hated Rome with a passion and they were looking to their Messiah 
to restore to Israel the throne of David and to establish their rule over the land. This was their preoccupied thought. It consumed their thoughts and it was their entire focus. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to set everything right and, and what's going to happen is, is we're going to rule over the land. And so they shout Hosanna and what they're not saying is save now. We need to be made right with God and cleansed of our sin right now. What they're actually saying is save our nation now. Bring us back to prosperity now. They're saying we want to rule. We want to reign. If you'll forgive me, they're saying we want to make Israel great again. This is what they're saying. This is their heart. This is their mind. It's on earthly things. It's not on eternal things. Now, the second thing to note that reveals the heart of this great multitude is that they herald Jesus with palm branches. What's up with that, right? There, we call it Palm Sunday. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Because when Jesus came in, they waved palm branches to herald him. This is a major clue because the palm branch was a nationalistic symbol. And what it, what it, was, it was the equivalent of us waving an American flag. Because the, the, the palm branch was this thing that said, hey, it's our nation and you're the guy that's going to restore our nation. You're the guy that's going to overthrow Rome. And <clears throat> so this is what's going on here. Third thing to note is that they're welcoming Jesus because they had seen, the text makes it clear, Lazarus raised from the dead. And basically anybody with the power <clears throat> to do that certainly has the power to come here and set everything right and to, to make everything great again, right? And so to the adoring crowds on Palm Sunday, Jesus, they saw Jesus as the key to their circumstances, but he wasn't the key to their souls. And right now, we need to do a heart check and say, what is Jesus to me? Is he that key to my, my circumstance? Or is the key to my soul? See, the, 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 the implication for us, we have to understand who Jesus really is, what his message really is, how great our need truly is. Listen, our need is so great that the Father sent his son to be massacred, to be killed, tortured and killed. See, many, we see Jesus as a means to an end. You know, hey, I could use, I could use a handy guy like you to have around to, to be part of my empire, right? Come on, be, 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 part, be with me, man. Just, just I, could, I could use some patience, you know, I could use some strength, I could, certainly could use some prosperity and, and, and all these other things. And so, so Jesus becomes that genie in a bottle to some. He didn't come to die to build your empire. He came to save you from sin, save you from death, to save you from the bondage of Satan and sin and death. Well, verse 14, it says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. John here, what he says, with the benefit of hindsight, he says basically what Jesus did and why Jesus did it. He found a young donkey. 
Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus selected this donkey as a deliberate act. You might not get it in our text here. It kind of seems like he's walking in and he's like, hey, you know, I need, to, I need an Uber. Oh, there's a donkey. You know, here we go kind of thing, right? It, it, was, it was a very deliberate act that, that actually Jesus, a couple of days before this, had directed two of his disciples to go get this donkey, right, as he was coming into Bethany. Um, Luke's gospel makes that abundantly clear. Why? Here's why. Because the donkey was an animal for a man of peace, right? A priest or a nobleman or somebody who was on a peaceful journey, they would ride, ride in on a donkey. In contrast, a conqueror, somebody who was coming in to kick butt and take names and to kick Rome out and all of this stuff, they would have ridden into to the city on a war horse. Jesus specifically chose to ride in on a donkey. And what he's doing is he is telegraphing, he's conveying his intentions here. As Jesus comes in, he, hey, I didn't come to make war. I come to, came to bring peace. <clears throat> and listen, let me tell you, Jesus wants to bring peace to your life today. He wants to bring you peace. Peace to your soul. Peace to your family. Peace between you and God. That's why Jesus came. David Guzik, in his commentary, he said, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, both as a deliberate fulfillment of prophecy given in Zechariah 9.9, which is what they shout here, right? He's fulfilling prophecy strategically. Uh, and, he says, as a demonstration of the character of his kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom, not a military kingdom. He came in peace, not war. Let me ask you a question. Do you have peace with God today? You have peace with God because you can. John chapter 14, we'll get there eventually. And Jesus speaking to his disciples as he's getting ready to leave them, he says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Listen to me, guys. You're not going to find peace in your wallets. You're not going to find peace in job security. You're not going to find peace in a bottle. You're not going to find peace in a pill. You're not going to find peace in your possessions. Not a, ultimately, you're not even going to find peace in your family. Some of you go, I've already discovered that lesson right now, PT, <laughs> right? You, these things don't bring peace. Peace comes from Jesus, the author and maker of peace. And by the way, this is why we sing. One of the songs I love to sing, but just listen to the words of it. I'll put them on the screen for you. Jesus, worthy is the lamb that was slain for us. Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up, and all the world will praise your great name. The lost are saved. Find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every fear has no place at the sound of your great name. The enemy has to flee at the sound of your great name. All the weak find their strength at the sound of your great name. Hungry souls receive grace at the sound of your great name. The fatherless find their rest at the sound of your great name. The sick are healed, the dead are raised at the sound of your great name. Jesus, worthy is the lamb that was slain for us. And listen, Jesus accomplished all of this, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. As a suffering servant, he will 
be a conquering king in his second coming. But he came in his first coming as a suffering servant, as the Lamb of God riding on a donkey's coal. And John says when Jesus did this, they didn't understand it until after his death and burial and resurrection. The idea is that the disciples completely missed the prophetic implications of this very first Palm Sunday. Completely missed. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the word of God. Jesus wasn't coming to make things right in the nation of Israel. He was coming to make things right between God and man and to usher in a new kingdom. And not only do they miss it, the multitudes completely miss it as well. Verse 17 says, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. See, this idea is the people are, hey, this guy has got power over death, like he's the one that we need to hitch our wagons to. Well, verse 19 tells us that the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Understand, the Pharisees' worst fear was that they would lose their power and their position and their paycheck. This was their worst fear. And now all the multitudes are swarming to Jesus, right? These guys are at DEFCON 10. They're, they're like, you know, we see the writing on the wall. It's over for us, right? Our days are numbered. And, and it's true that their days are numbered, but here's what's also true. So are the days of this great multitude. The days of the great multitude are also numbered. You see... It's true that the multitude is praising Jesus here and welcoming him here and shouting out all these messianic prophecies that are being fulfilled right in this moment. They're being fulfilled. But in just a few days from now, Jesus is going to be arrested and he's going to be put on trial. And all of the people's illusions that they have now as they're welcoming him and praising him, they are all going to be shattered. And when that happens, they are going to turn on him and they're going to drop him like third period French. Man, they are turning on him hard. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, is going to say, it's a very familiar story, we know this, is Jesus' crucifixion and he gets put on trial and they take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. <clears throat> he interrogates Jesus, has him beaten and, 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 you know, a massive, horrible beating, brings him out to the crowd and basically he says, look, I don't find any fault in this guy. He's not guilty of any crime." But he goes on to say, you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner at every Passover. <clears throat> Would you like me to release the king of the Jews? And they, he's referring to Jesus, and they shouted back, no, not this man. Same people that are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, you are our king, you're the one. The very same people, they say, no, not this man. What do they say? They say, we want Barabbas. And the Bible tells us very pointedly in John chapter 18 that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. That's what they wanted. 
They wanted an insurrectionist. Remember I told you when we began, not only is who you worship a big deal, it's also important to define why you worship. Because it's actually possible to worship the right God with the wrong motive. And this this multitude's motive for worshiping Jesus on this very first Palm Sunday, they wanted an insurrectionist. Someone to fight for their nation. Let me tell you very clearly, Jesus didn't come for that then, and he didn't come for that now. This was not Jesus' intended coming. He came to die for your soul, and he came to die for my soul. And so I close asking you this question, why do you worship? Why do you worship? What's your motive on this Palm Sunday? I want to close with three questions, as I always do. I pray you'd write them down, take a walk with them this week. We'll put the questions up after the service. Question number one, what are my motives for worshiping Jesus? Question number two, what are some ways that people today confuse nationalism with spiritualism, and what's the difference? And question number three, what are some unhealthy ways that people respond when their expectations don't line up with God's plans.